0: Hi, this is Midwest Duration, and I'm Freya Burdson. This week, I'm sharing my interview with John Taylor, the land manager for the Field Station and Environmental Education Center at Ball State University. I've been lucky to not only see John speak at the Stewardship Network conference previously, but also was able to attend one of the burn manager trainings he coordinates. We met at the Cooper Farm a site just northwest of Muncie, Indiana. With that, let's go to the interview. All right. Okay. I am standing at the Cooper Farm site with John Taylor and I am going to start out with asking him to kind of tell us who he is and uh, what is his connection to this this site that we are at right now.
1: Okay. I'm John Taylor. I'm the land manager for Ball State's Field Station and Environmental Education Center. And that's six properties all in Delaware County. Um, They're owned by the university and they're used for environmental education and research and um, for restoration um, practices. So at this site, we've got about a 40-acre prairie and then we've got some woodland and some successional area. And then on the north side of this property, we have an adjoining property called Skinner Field Area. That's uh, got some active agriculture uh, succession and a nice forest. So the two forests are together. They make about a, a 40 acre or 35 acre forest. And then the the prairie on this side is used for research and uh, we also do the prescribed fire and wildland fire training here. That the National Wildfire Coordinating Group Certification Red Card, um, and then the prescribed fire for managers that the DNR puts on. Uh, We are able to do that here. We're able to offer that to our Ball State students that are going into uh, ecology and environmental science fields, as well as um, the community. So it's hard to get that training in the community. DNR offers it to DNR. Purdue offers it to Purdue. But here at Ball State, we're offering it every other year pretty much anybody who's interested Um, I know that you (laughs) you took the training two years ago here Uh and uh, did the live fire exercise Mm -hmm. so we have like I said 40 acres of prairie that's restored from uh, meadow that had been at some point used for agriculture and then for uh, a number of years was just um, mowed field there was a an area that was planted into trees in I think 96, 97, but there wasn't a clear plan for what that was going to be used for. Eventually, the trees were in rows; they were getting too big to start moving out onto campus. So we salvaged as many as we could with the grounds department and their tree spade, and we planted some up around the Cooper House and onto campus. But the rest of them, we ground down and used the the area that those occupied as part of our prairie restoration project. So in mm-hmm. 2000. Two, I planted the first five-acre patch in 2003. I planted the second five-acre patch, which is what we're standing next to. Uh, fairly diverse seed mixes, so it was expensive. Um, we had a huge teasel problem in the other areas, mm. especially the lower, wetter areas, and it's very clayey soil. So managing that, I learned a lot about managing teasel mm-hmm. uh, and how to approach. Uh, prairie restoration. I know when I worked at Spence Restoration Nursery for a couple of years before that uh, the easiest sites to convert to prairie were active agriculture mm. because of the weed suppression that the farming practices do.
2: Yeah.
1: I, I didn't have that here, so <laughs> I, I made it up as I went using the best science I could could find and it, it was quite an effort, but we did manage to suppress most of the teasel and um, 2013, uh, Tim Carter, a wildlife biologist here at Ball State, wanted to do a uh, dormant season versus growing season burn um, strategy to see the uh, effects on the small mammal populations. Mm. So, set up an experiment. We divided up the 40-acre prairie into pieces. We've got 14 small pieces that we burn about half in the growing season and half in the dormant season. We ended up with. Uh, burning three a year in each of the three to four a year in each of those categories so it's every other year that a, a piece gets burned and because of COVID-19 we didn't burn anything at mm-hmm. all last year yeah so our last burn uh it was um, dormant season I think we did a f- Now we didn't even get a growing season burn in the 2019 it just the season went by too fast yeah so
0: I yeah, we're changing
1: things a little bit so that we can um, uh, alternate the the results of the study. We did a 2019 study of the vegetation to see if the prescribed fire seasonality was affecting the forb populations Mm -hmm. in those two different categories, growing season and dormant season. What we found was, uh, at least with the data that we collected, that the growing season burns were probably too early in the season, so they were very late July to mid August uh, the latest one was in september and uh, going back through the data uh, made it clear that our our thoughts on are we increasing for diversity and and density in the in the growing season burns or decreasing. We were decreasing the native perennial forbs and increasing the annual forbs mm-hmm. and the cool, cool season grasses, which is not what we wanted to yeah. do. So we're going to switch that up. I'm going to uh, burn later in the summer, so late September, mm-hmm. beginning of October, and I'm switching those, part, those uh, patches so that we can try to reset those yeah another thing that was really cool that we were able to do so i i use gis a Mm -hmm. lot i'm not a a great gis practitioner but i've been able to do some things with with gis and one of them was to uh, set out plots in the prairie and um till till those plots or five by five meter plots and put in seeds from a diverse forb mix Mm -hmm. because when i planted uh Like I said, the the first 10 acres we did were a high dense, a high forb diversity mix. The rest of it to manage the teasel was mostly grass, Mm -hmm. and I did an overseeding with forbs. that didn't work very well. I see a couple deer running out of the prairie. (laughs) Overseeding with forbs, and uh, that didn't didn't take. And I've learned that you can't really seed forbs into a dense grass area. Mm -hmm. It's just too much competition. So tilling those areas five by five meters and then seeding them with the forbs. I'm hoping to be able to see a lot more forb diversity spread from those areas but also attract pollinators into those areas and with the GIS I'm able to keep track of exactly where those are Mm -hmm. and monitor those over time. So we have like 96 five by five meter plots spread throughout here (laughs) which is really cool to be able to come back and, and see specific areas. I know exactly what I planted. I know when I planted it. Mm-hmm. They were all planted at the same time. They have different burn regimens, you know, growing season and dormant season, slightly different soil conditions, mm-hmm. but uh, to be able to quantify all those things and, and see if the results are due to chance or some of the other manipulations. We Plus mm-hmm. it's good monarch butterfly habitat and yeah. that's, that's part of the driving force behind that.
0: Nice. No, that's, that's really fascinating. Like the, um, I, I know that a lot of times in, in restoration situations, like the grasses can get a little crazy. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's really interesting work to see if there are other solutions to, to, you know, you like the native grass. We love native grasses, but they will push out the forbs and then what do you do? So, yeah. And, uh. So it will be interesting to see yeah. what what happens with the, those plots. Those
1: dormant season burns tend to, from what I understand from the literature and anecdotally, tend to favor the the warm season grasses,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so that's the idea behind that is to try to reduce the the dominance of those grasses. Mm-hmm. And the tilling and seeding was to mimic the like bison or heavy grazers coming through and, and disturbing the, the soil. Making open spaces in those grass areas so that seeds of other species can germinate.
0: Awesome! It's pretty neat. Yeah. No. Absolutely.
1: We had uh, butterfly milkweed germinate and grow and flower within a year, Ah. which is (laughs) really astonishing. Uh, Yeah.
0: And uh, and you mentioned the. The teasel problem as well, yeah. and looking around and uh, um, just from from you know the the line of sight where we are, it looks like that it's not not nearly as bad of a problem well, as it probably was
1: right at in at least this here. area. Yeah, it's not too bad. There are some areas where it started to come back, but I got rid of almost all of it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is that says a lot. It yeah. took a lot of effort to do that and uh, applied chemicals Chemicals when needed, and at the, of course, the right rates and and frequencies. But um, if you miss it, (laughs) it's a problem. So Uh things have gotten busy, and there have been some spots that I wasn't able to get back to, and it's it's coming back in those areas. So I'll have Mm to target that again with the GIS. I can I can put in a point using Survey One Two Three, Mm -hmm. an Esri product. And then I can have that show up in a map, and then I can make an assignment in what's called uh, workforce, mm. and I can give that to myself or to a student to go out and do some particular management. Thank you. And uh, even working with volunteers with the Red Tail Conservancy, they're going to start using some of those same applications. So volunteers can get an assignment on their smartphone,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or they can put in some kind of a. Item that they see, like a tree across a trail,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they notice, and then the, the managers can can know what's needed when.
0: Nice.
1: Yeah. Oh, the technology has changed a lot.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, any anything that can help with this work <laughs> is is great.
1: Right. So that's
0: that's good. Good. And
1: my students learn how to do this, so that when they come, and it's it's. Nice, I'm in a weird position. I I am. Um, I run the chainsaw, and and a tractor and I also can teach classes mm-hmm. and do research and do publications and, and present at conferences and um, advise students on internships. So I, I have a lot of different hats that I get to wear
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's fun and challenging uh, and it's kind of uh, a way to integrate all of these different, uh, making it real, making the, the science that you get in the classroom. Come alive on the landscape, so yeah. I'm excited to get to do this work.
0: No, that's awesome, and uh, so yeah, I mean, you you touched a little bit on um, your background uh, prior to here um, with with Spence Nursery. Um, what uh, what was your path to yeah. to kind of get to where you are now?
1: So I grew up in Anderson, and my family would go camping up at the State Park, mm-hmm. and as a probably eight year old or so. Uh, Kind of latched on to the naturalists up there. Mm-hmm. And a little bit later, uh, you know, got involved with the Park Patch program, mm. uh, junior naturalist, and then Hoosier Ecologist programs. I don't know if you're familiar with that, uh-huh. but, but those are kind of like the Indiana Master Naturalist, but for kids. Nice. Did those with uh, Fred Woolley and uh, Kip Miller, mm. and uh, that was in the early 80s. And then I had a really amazing. Uh, biology teacher in ninth grade, Cheryl Myers, mm. and people in this area will know her. Uh, she has been a very active uh, person in the White River cleanup after mm-hmm. the big fish kill in the late nineties, and start and has been really a voice of reason behind the whole uh, Mounds Lake Dam proposal that would destroy the uh, the nature preserve at Mounds Park, yeah. and and it, it's just a terrible idea, but she's been uh, excellent at helping people understand what's at stake Mm -hmm. and what the real costs would be uh, to doing something like that. Went into college, uh, got a degree in botany, plant ecology as a master's student, worked at Mammoth Cave for three summers measuring trees and uh, quantifying the herbaceous plants on the ground. That was my first introduction to GIS where we uh, kind of quantified what the landscape positions were and what, what, the, um, what the chances of any particular forest community type being in a particular location based on soil, geology, bedrock, mm-hmm. s- uh, slope aspect and those things. So learning a little bit of GIS at in grad school, this was in 93 to 95 mm-hmm. and then Later on, being able to incorporate that in a different way. It's still, I would love to get back down there and, and measure those plots. We mm-hmm. had eleven hectares in permanent plots.
0: Nice. That's a lot. Yeah.
1: That's a lot <laughs> of trees. We measured over <laughs> like twenty-two thousand trees in the course of two and a half summers. Wow. And, and a lot of uh, I learned a lot of botany. Went from there to uh, Indiana DNR Nature Preserves for a little while, just uh, a season and. Uh, USGS uh, Biological Resources Division. Learned a lot of botany up at the dunes, and then went to Spence Nursery after that. Mm -hmm. And actually, I I spent a little time at the Hoosier Orchid Company in Indianapolis. Not, you know, they're out of business now, but learned a lot of orchids, which has come in handy Mm -hmm. uh, working at Ball State because we have the Renard Orchid Greenhouse, and that is the largest collection of species orchids associated with the university in North America cool. quite an impressive collection yeah. it's open to the public it's a, a, an amazing facility and coming back to ball state knowing a lot of the orchids i was able to to appreciate what we had and, and uh, i think it made me better suited for the job
0: nice yeah, yeah. now that's that's really neat. I'm gonna have to look into that. I've yeah. never heard of the,
1: yeah, the collection open. before. Yeah, it's <laughs> open today. Um, and then having the other greenhouse background Spence mm-hmm. Nursery, and, um, I I actually hired into Ball State to take care of the of Christie Woods, which is our campus uh, forest,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, we have a teaching and research greenhouse there, and that is to support the biology classes. Mm-hmm. In natural resources classes, and there's a research component of some. We have a professor who does research on, uh, let's say, soil chemistry, uh, particularly like um, metal pollutants in soil, and and what are the um, effects of plants. There are other components to that research, but he's looking at like phytoremediation, which is an interesting topic, and he's been able to use the the greenhouse for that as well. Very cool. So I work with some amazing people. I work with uh, Sherry Grant, and her background is primarily wildlife, but she's also a great botanist, and she um, was a naturalist at Summit Lake for a while, a seasonal naturalist for a little while. So she's got all the interpretation background, education. She's a certified um, educator, and an amazing greenhouse person. She runs the teaching and research greenhouse. Does a really remarkable job work with Cheryl LeBlanc, who came from uh, a background at SUNY in New York, the Mm -hmm. uh, forestry school and has run the uh, orchid greenhouse for years, like 25 years I think, and she's an amazing resource uh, for orchids and and ecology and quite an artist as well. She does a lot of illustrations, uh, botanical illustrations. So I really am happy to work with them, and, and recently we hired uh, Erica Forestater, and she actually lives here at the Cooper House, yeah. watches over the property, and she's our environmental educator. and Works with a lot of children, school groups, and community. So that's that's another nice component of the of the job. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Nice. No, that's that's wonderful, and having that, I know connection to to the area and then it just uh uh the community you work with is 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 awesome and yeah. uh I've heard nothing but but good things about the programs here so that's
1: yeah awesome. we work well as a team uh, on uh, on so many different aspects because it's so uh wide ranging mm-hmm. and uh, it's enjoyable coming to work is is fun yeah, yeah. So, this is one of the six properties, the Cooper. I call it Cooper Skinner Farm because mm-hmm. they are adjoining, although they have different management <coughs> different, uh different approaches. I don't do a lot on the Skinner side, but I, I spend a lot of time here at Cooper. But uh, Miller Wildlife Area is another property. It mm-hmm. used to be called 16 Acres. It's uh, just a part of the White River Oxbow, and um, it's a floodplain forest that's terribly overrun with honeysuckle. Mm-hmm. And I've made strides to eliminate some of that, but it's it's a lot of work, a lot mm-hmm. of physical labor and expensive. Uh, Sometime hoping to get a grant to, to do more with that. I've submitted one grant proposal, didn't make it that time, and I'll try another one
2: mm-hmm. in a
1: year or two when things slow down a little bit. Yeah. And we have, of course, Christy Woods I mentioned, and that's a 17-acre property. Mm-hmm. And it's Got quite a bit of infrastructure, the the greenhouses plus trails and mm-hmm. fence and a couple of buildings in there. Uh, then we have Holtz Environmental Learning Center, which is a hundred-acre working farm, 50 acres in ag production, and it's got a, a forest and orchard and pond and trails and the amphitheater, and it's, it's actually got a house and barns. Mm-hmm. This has a, Cooper Farm has a house, so I. I'm kind of a landlord too. I uh-huh. have those things. Plus, I, I act as a landlord and do minor, minor repairs, or or call in work orders for larger repairs that I can't do myself. So those are those are interesting parts of the job yeah. too. That you don't really think yeah. about yeah. Holtz Environmental Learning Center, hundred acre farm, fifty acres in agricultural production, house and barns and trails and all of that stuff. Uh, hoping to convert that agricultural. Land into uh, like a conservation reserve program, something to take it out of agriculture okay. and put it into a native habitat. Mm-hmm. eventually, I would love to see it be reforested so that's that's further down the road, I think, but
2: mm-hmm.
1: it, I have my eyes on that same with the the little bit of uh, agricultural land here at the Skinner farm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We'd like to see that put into some kind of conservation practice that's better for the soil and the wildlife
2: Very
0: cool,
1: and last but not least is. The Ginn Woods property, mm-hmm. which was settled in 1830 by John and Isabel again. they're Irish. They were Irish immigrants. Uh, they came through Pennsylvania and Ohio. They stopped there for a few years and then settled here in Delaware County with, I think it was 800 acres or so. One of the first families to move into the to the area, mm. a, at least outside of the Muncie proper. 1830 is still really early uh cleared a lot of land
2: mm-hmm. and
1: parceled it out for different things over the years, but a portion of it stayed wooded mm-hmm. and that was always referred to as Ginn's Woods and in 1970 uh, the great granddaughter of John and Isabella Ginn basically donated. It, it was a bargain sale, it was a dollar for the, for the land uh. to Ball State. Yeah and uh three other parcels followed that like it was a 64 acre and then 40 and then 40 and then 10. so we have i might have the math wrong but it's 165 acres Mm -hmm. of protected land Mm -hmm. and it's basically old growth forest there's not been any history of logging or grazing in that in most of that area Which is phenomenal. Yeah. This is a heavily agriculturally dominated area. Everything has at least been cut over
2: mm-hmm. or
1: had cows or pigs in it. Even Christie Woods on campus had cows and pigs in it.
2: Yeah.
1: but uh, And even here at uh, Cooper Farm, I'm mm-hmm. sure there were cows in it. But the Gin Woods was not. And so it's remarkable for the biodiversity and the, the history of it. We are actively pursuing dedication as a state nature preserve. so. In March, I'll give a presentation to the Ball State Board of Directors.
2: Mm.
1: First time to ever do that, and uh, then in May, should go to the Natural Resources Commission with the State of Indiana in Indianapolis. That's awesome. And I am i don't see why it wouldn't be approved. Mm. I don't control that, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I've only heard favorable things about dedicating
0: Yeah. Well, good luck with that. That's Thank amazing. You. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, it's it's very exciting. It's yeah. been a long process. It was identified in 1968 when the Nature Preserves was organized. Mm-hmm. They have a book of uh, nature nature preserve natural areas in Indiana, mm-hmm. and their protection was the name of the book, and it was listed in there. But uh, finally, we'll, we'll be <laughs> dedicating
0: it. That's awesome. So yeah. so when you said you had multiple hats that you wear here just yes. just a, just a couple of them That's another yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> another
1: one. Uh-huh. This is uh. exciting. I'm I'm thrilled.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So with this site, the Cooper farm um, you talked about the the history a little bit. Um how how did this this area come to be something that is under Ball state oh, and then the that's few such a good
1: question. That's a great question at the Cooper farm. So Dr. Robert Cooper um, was a very important uh, member of the Ball State faculty in the, I'm thinking 40s to 70s. Uh, so he he was a professor in the biology department, it was the science department at the time. He worked with Otto Christie and, mm. and Dr. Christie is the one who was our first um, one very first science people at Ball State, eight, 1918, is when he started. But Cooper was a, uh, an interesting person. He he was a pilot. He would take sometimes he would take people to go see natural places. Um, he started, or at least was named after him, the Robert Cooper Audubon Society, which is our local chapter mm-hmm. of the Audubon Society, and the Cooper Science Building was named for him. So he was very important. He owned uh, the property we're standing on, he and his wife lived in the house. Uh, the Westminster Village was actually on his his property, which is the retirement community across mm-hmm. the road, and he donated, I think, 39 acres with the condition that if he and his wife ever needed to, they could, they could live there. Um, and his wife did actually live there. I think he passed before he needed to go to a long-term care facility, Mm -hmm. but she was there for a number of years even when I was a uh, graduate student, I think she was was over there. The rest of the land, um, there was a 1950s forest plan for making the forest produce better quality timber, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: uh, so that was kind of the aspect that they were considering there. I'm not sure about this whole meadow area, I think it grew up in shrubs and then eventually that was cleared off with bulldozers Mm -hmm. and then it was meadow. When I started, it was mode, and um, then I converted it to prairie. It, it, uh, everything is educational, mm-hmm. so and all of the experiences I've had working with Dr. Badger, who was my mentor as an undergraduate and a master's and uh, student, and has been a, my supervisor for years. All of these experiences sort of come together to make. Uh, to make, to be able to do my job. Mm -hmm. So the experiences I got at the USGS identifying plants that I hadn't seen or at Mammoth Cave identifying plants I hadn't learned before and botany, teaching as a TA for Dr. Badger when he taught plant taxonomy, Mm -hmm. all those experiences. Then Spence Restoration Nursery actually planting native plants and and managing prairies kind of came together for putting in this 40 acre prairie. And I did my burn training up at the dunes in 97, I learned, uh, I that's where I met Cliff Chapman. I don't know if you've talked about Cliff Chapman, but he is the Central Indi- Indiana Land Trust Incorporated mm-hmm. Executive Director, uh, worked for BNR Nature Preserves for a while, and that's where I met him was burn training. So all of this comes together, and everything that I learn, I try to find a way to pass to my students. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get good training in the classroom at Ball State. Mm-hmm. They get excellent training in the classroom. but I always say and, and anybody who has worked out in the field says there's no substitute for getting out and doing
2: mm-hmm.
1: the, it's the practice it's not the theory it's the practice that mm-hmm. really solidifies uh, but all those classroom experiences come together when when planning a seed mix or planning when to do the herbicide over or, or uh, how to how to do the prescribed fire safely so all of those come together um, and so everything is educational experience
0: yeah and everything builds off of itself and yeah uh, just I think it's it's so neat to hear your experience of, of working on this site and how it's changed and how you're still working on like on learning how to you know accomplish the results you're you're seeking and uh, it's like a never-ending, never-ending source of of learning. It never
1: (laughs) ends and I can walk through here and see things that I need to do, which is great to have that that uh, cell phone app now Mm -hmm. because if I see something I can just put it in my phone. I don't have to hold it in my head because there's too many other stuff competing for that, Mm -hmm. that attention Uh, and then I can organize. But yeah, it, it all just comes together. Even things that you wouldn't expect to come together mm-hmm. like uh, i have uh I have some background with uh I had an exchange student in high school, and that person influenced me uh to go more toward a biology degree than natural resources, mm-hmm. so I got a bachelor's in botany and a or in a and a minor in uh, spanish and uh, natural resources nice. so because I always wanted to be a naturalist
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and and I get to do that and but I have the strong botany background and plant ecology background that allows me to do these other things
0: Nice. yeah Yeah, very cool and yeah I guess this this site is is especially unique just as as like an outdoor classroom so to speak and uh, um I remember, like you you mentioned, I I came to the training that you organized here, um, and then seeing the map and seeing the the different burn grids. And um, is that essentially the the future of this site? Is or do you foresee changing the? um, I guess ultimately, what what do you foresee in this site? 20, 50, 70 years?
1: That's a really good question. That's a very good, and I don't know because I, I'm not going to be around at that time. Um, at least I won't be actively managing. Mm-hmm. It is because it was, uh, the effort was made to plant it basically all at one time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it is in a sense set up as a research prairie, so I'm hoping that it's continued, you know, the mm-hmm. the research different aspects of the research continue. I, I would like to see what happens with those little five by five mm-hmm. meter plots to see if they develop those orbs that we put in. And if those spread, because mm-hmm. in all the areas surrounding them, there weren't those yeah. species. They just aren't there. So if they spread, you'll be able to tell because mm-hmm. you know exactly where they're planted. I'm hoping that the research will continue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Another thing that I really want to see, uh, that we need to do more of, is prescribed fire training.
2: Mm-hmm. I get
1: emails all the time about when are we going to offer the, the training and for us it's every other year.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm really excited that we have a an Indiana Prescribed Fire Council now. It's like three years old, mm-hmm. coming up on three years I think. And, and they do some really good work but they're small and the need is huge, mm-hmm. the need to have uh, practitioners being able to use fire in natural areas at least in our area but broadly across the nation
2: mm-hmm.
1: we need to have more understanding and more acceptance of fire on the landscape.
2: Yeah.
1: And where do you get that training if you're not employed by an agency that will provide it? Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. So I hear all the time uh, you know, I get emails all the time, when are you gonna offer that training? And it's every other year. But mm-hmm. maybe we should do it every year. Yeah.
0: No, for sure. And uh just, I mean, public perception too of uh, prescribed by burning is is fairly mixed. Um, yeah. Do you find the the local community is pretty
1: well, welcoming? It, yeah, actually, it's it's pretty interesting because we are right, like I said earlier, right across from a retirement community, mm-hmm. and we when we burn this prairie, and it depends on when we do it, the the smoke column
2: mm-hmm. can be
1: huge. <laughs> It when we burn in late July or early August, and all yeah. that moisture in those plants, even if it's dry, they're still not dry like they are in March.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it puts a tremendous column of smoke in the air, yeah. and I haven't had negative feedback. I haven't heard people complain. Now, awesome. I don't get on the internet and look for that, uh-huh. so it could be there. I'm not hearing about it. But mm-hmm. But nobody's contacted me and said you guys should stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so either they don't care, which is possible, mm-hmm. people are busy, and they're not affected, or they know that this is something that's educational mm-hmm. because it is associated with the university.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, we could probably do a little bit more publicity about mm-hmm. it, but it's it's been happening for almost 20 years here, so mm-hmm. I'm. I'm encouraged that we haven't had a lot of negative feedback.
0: Oh, that is that is wonderful. Just, um, I, I feel like once people are kind of, people outside of the field or, or loosely associated with it, once they understand that someone is a professional and they're burning, they they learn that it's okay. Yeah,
1: I think that's, <laughs> that's a big part of it. Early on when we started, we were able to involve the uh, Gaston Volunteer Fire Department, mm-hmm. which is, we're just, we're just outside the city limits right here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and two of the top people at the Gaston Volunteer Fire Department are the facilities managers at Westminster. Yeah. So, I- and we did educational programs over there too. Mm-hmm. We explained what we were doing and how we were going to do it and, and the purpose of it. And, um, you know, obviously, the, a lot of the residents that would have been there at that time are no longer are are no longer there because that was almost twenty years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, we've we've only had support from from Westminster. Nice, yeah.
0: That's that's good. That's a huge a huge part of of the work is community support or yeah. at least community. Tolerance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Know. But no, that's, that's good.
1: Yeah. And um. occasionally there'll be a newspaper article when we did this training two years ago. There was uh, a little bit of publicity that went with that, and the mm-hmm. newspaper uh, wrote a story about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So mm-hmm. at least there's some awareness. Yeah. It, it may be increasing somewhat. And then with the fires last year in California, and they're even talking about fires right now. Uh, severe weather.
2: Mm-hmm. I don't know if
1: it's happening today, but they were predicting that. Uh, I think people's awareness that pers- that there needs to be burning from time to time, where you get this massive buildup
0: mm-hmm.
1: of fuel, and that's not this environment, but it it plays into that same understanding of ecology.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because if, you know, at least for for midwestern general burning you're, you're still trying to knock back, uh, build up of, of shrub material. Depen- yeah. Well, depending on your, on right. your goals and stuff. So it's, it's, it's similar mm-hmm. in, in theme. Yeah. <laughs> um. And I
1: don't think that, that, I don't think there's a lot of understanding of invasive species mm. in our area, but mm-hmm. that's, that's changing too. And that's one of the reasons that we burn is because the invasive species,
2: mm-hmm. the
1: shrubs particularly, um, can be problematic. Yeah. That's changing. I'm ho- trying to help out. It's still early, uh, but the Sikkim Southern Indiana mm-hmm. Cooperative Invasive Species Management Program, or the the III Indiana Invasives Initiative, mm. and so each county has their own group. And I'm on the Delaware County group. Mm. We're hoping to do more awareness um, activities, but it's hard with COVID-19.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's changed, changed a lot and just made a, a lot of work for when things
1: yeah. calm down
0: a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> just, uh,
1: everything gets delayed a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Do you want to walk around a little bit?
0: Uh, sure.
1: So, I don't know if you can see, there's a, a post over there, the red top on that metal post. Uh, oh, yep. Yeah, so we have a grid of permanent plots. And we set that out in 2002, I think did a preliminary study of what species were out here before I planted the prairie. And that goes all the way back to the trees. And then inside of the woods, we have another set of posts marking permanent plots. So we have 20 years of data or so on those permanent plots in the forest. And then in 2015, I worked with Don Rook, and he's a botanist. And we uh, measured all of the trees above 20 centimeters in that smaller Skinner wood. So that's something that I really enjoy is mapping trees. Uh-huh. The, the technology allows me to, to record the location, and then, and then I can overlay it. So one of the things that I've recently been able to do is to get some aerial imagery.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't fly the drone; that's, that's outside of my <laughs> purview. But I've worked with a staff person here at Ball State who flew some and uh, collected some imagery of, of this property and several others. And then I'm working with some some folks up at Purdue. We've got some better equipment and some some more know-how on how to how to work with that. Um, Imagery, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that at some point we're able to take those stem maps that where the trees are on the landscape because mm-hmm. we measured them on the ground, which is the hard part,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or at least uh, expensive, time consuming, and, and uh, arduous can uh-huh. be depending on when you do it, and then overlay mm-hmm. the imagery and start to be able to use machine learning mm-hmm. and uh, artificial intelligence to interpret the, the reflectance, the light signatures, like hyperspectral imagery, to determine species, or at least species group, like red oak group. So pin oak, black oak, shumard's oak, red oak, uh, versus white oak, uh, yeah. swamp white oak. So to be able to use aerial imagery to pick out species or species groups. And then from there, there are a lot of questions you can ask. You can ask, how big is the crown on this?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you can see the whole crown using, uh, for example, LIDAR, mm-hmm. with the light detection and ranging with the lasers and figure out how big a tree is, at, at how much volume it has. And if you have a diameter of that tree and you have a crown area, maybe you can figure out how much carbon is locked up in that tree and do that for the landscape and figure out how much carbon is there in a forest. Mm-hmm. And then that ties into some of the things that we want to do with uh, carbon sequestration and climate mm-hmm. mitigation. If we wanted to plant a forest, what would the end goal look like? How mm-hmm. much carbon could you pull out of the air with this mix of species over this much time? Questions that we don't have answers to yet. Yeah. But I'm, I'm excited with the technological changes and the expertise that's, that's forming out mm-hmm. there to start asking some of these questions early on like how can we how can we pair up what we already know Mm -hmm. in this area with what we can learn in this other area to start to ask questions that we haven't been able to ask before
0: that's that's really fascinating and and a really neat use of the technology I've, I've read articles where they have have tried to do similar identification method with invasive species but yeah
1: uh, right uh, they yeah. did the, um, the stewardship network had a really nice uh, webinar where the, the, the and I wish I'd gone back and and gotten it but they're able to look at invasive species in like beach areas or um, nature preserves along the shore yeah see where is it likely that these invasive plants will come in
0: mm-hmm. and what
1: would we look for and then test that yeah and go back well this is what we saw Let's refine it, and that's the machine learning is is able to help you refine what you're looking for.
0: That's really cool.
1: That's really cool.
0: (laughs) And uh, um, do you know? uh, Would you um, also tie in the um, vegetation variables within prairies as well? To
1: trying to yeah trying to. A uh, couple of ways we could do that here. We find those low spots, the swales mm-hmm. in this property. Um, target the the teasel that's in there, and I can see some teasel right in front of me because this is a low spot and mm-hmm. it's just right on the edge of of uh, uh, clay tile that doesn't work, mm-hmm. and and that we don't really want it to work here. Yeah. <laughs> but there are places where it uh, it stays wet, and you can see the. The change in vegetation and that's where you would look for certain things mm-hmm. so just I mean that's the very basics of what you mm-hmm. can do with nice. the, with the GIS but with the lidar or mm-hmm. at least with the other like some software drone deploy is what I've used mm-hmm. um, it's able to give you a three-dimensional image based on multiple photographs so mm-hmm. it's not using la- lasers mm-hmm. it's just using uh, photo overlay or not even overlay uh, stitching them together Uh and getting a parallax so you've got, got three dimensionality. You can see where you're getting some shrubs coming in Mm -hmm. and trees and you can, you can start to target those, highlight those on a map and send a crew out. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of that this summer. If you look across here, uh, there are not any noticeable trees Mm -hmm. or shrubs. This is not how it looked in May. (laughs) Oh yeah, (laughs) we we moved a lot of we moved a lot of wood. Okay, Uh, and since we weren't able to burn the last couple Mm -hmm. years, we had to had to do something to catch up. Yeah, and of course you can't burn right under trees with canopies because the fuel is decreased.
0: Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, and uh, that's that's neat. I uh, you (laughs) want to walk
1: a little bit more? Sure.
0: Yeah. No, this is that's. That's just a really cool project. Um, and then with with that, I mean what what could you inform um, after you have this sense of of uh, or what what kind of management goals could you then derive from from that knowledge of being able to to use use that information to identify? your species remotely yeah.
1: so some of it is going to be uh adaptive management like if you're finding consistently where you're just getting a lot of shrubs coming in that that are problematic you can just target those areas more with herbicides at the right time of year
2: because
1: mm-hmm. you're probably not killing the roots or I, at least for uh, thinking about garlic mustard and using the the GIS applications there. I can keep track of where a plant went to seed and follow up on that location for several years. Rick I just couldn't do that if I am using paper maps in a mm-hmm. hundred and sixty five acre forest yeah. with no trails and really no topography. It's yeah. all flat. It has topography, it just doesn't vary.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, the technology allows me to target those areas, and the the, uh, the drone being able to fly the larger area and find places that that have woody growth over time
0: and mm-hmm. feed things up there. Yeah. See
1: <laughs> now my properties are so small that I probably can just drive around the perimeter and see what's going on, but the the technology allows my students to know that they can use it Mm -hmm. later on on larger areas
0: yeah as far as um like like you said this is i mean it's not a tiny area but you know it is on on the landscape scale you know uh a, a a part um but uh uh just from from a a landscape perspective um how isolated is is the site that we're standing at right now um as far as like what what prospects do you s- foresee of having input of of nat natural input of of new native species versus you know the the expected input of of non native species
1: so Pretty much everything around here was deciduous forest, so mm-hmm. anything related to the prairie I'll have to bring in. Mm-hmm. I don't expect any, no, unless birds carry it in, uh, and I probably don't want it in that case. Uh-huh. Uh, and and really, other than pollution, I can't think of too many good things, that, yeah, that's not a good thing, mm-hmm. that are going to come in.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we're not really downstream from very much. Mm-hmm. so. And because it's upland, we're not going to get much from a hydrological perspective. Mm-hmm. So, at least on this property. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, one uh, or question that I, I just really like to ask folks, um, just from stepping back from from the technical aspects of of the work and uh, um, everything like that, but just just for you, Personally, what what drives you to do this work? What what is ecological restoration to you? As you know,
1: yeah, I think it's changed a little bit over time. I, I suppose when I first well I do remember coming out here as an undergraduate. It was mm-hmm. like 1991, and I was in Dr. Badger's uh, one of Dr. Badger's classes and he brought the group out. And we met with Tom Post from the DNR Nature Preserves Mm -hmm. who's from the northwest part of the state where they actually have prairie. He Mm -hmm. does manage prairie. And I got to work with him to to manage or burn those prairies for a little while. And I remember being in an area and talking about converting this grassland into prairie. And I said, why would you want to put it in prairie? It used to be forest. Mm. Shouldn't we be putting it into forest? And this is an undergrad Mm -hmm. speaking. So that stuck with me for a long time and then i am the one who turned it back into turned it into prairie Mm
2: -hmm.
1: there are as far as thinking about what what drives me there we don't know what the future is going to be as far as our natural areas we can't go back to 1820 Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and we can't hold an 1820 perspective on the landscape anymore. There are too many things that have changed. Mm-hmm. We can hope to have communities that can function for some period of time and hope that those communities can integrate so that you get transfer of biological information from one through another to where they can thrive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, corridors and core areas whatever they happen to be on on your particular landscape, mm-hmm. trying to maintain and expand those. So that's kind of my, that's where I am with restoration.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: gin Woods, and as a nature preserve, I'm, I'm going to try to hold that to 1830, even though that's not possible. Mm-hmm. We lost almost all the ash trees. Yeah. They're not gonna come back anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can keep out the garlic mustard mm-hmm. and I can try to at least observe what's happening. Uh, even if I can't stop change, I can at least try to document mm-hmm. what's happening. But did I mention that we've mapped? I had a, a graduate student named Stephanie Shuck. She is the restoration ecologist and environmental educator down at Marion University now. Mm-hmm. But as a master's student, she drove up from Indianapolis every day to measure trees at Woods. We measured almost 5,000 trees in a summer. Wow. And uh, that was quite a lot of work, but it was fun. Mm-hmm. It was a drought year, so we didn't have mosquitoes and we didn't have nettles <laughs> standing water or anything. But it was a big project. Mm-hmm. But that's where that, that stem map I mentioned came from. And we know what trees are where, and we can predict what will change, mm-hmm. uh, at least if, if we have another insect come through. We're worried worried about the beech bark disease and that, that nematode that seems to be spreading through yeah. Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Worried about those things because it's a lot of beech trees in that oh, area. Yeah. So what do I think of as far as restoration? I think it's it's going to be try to keep as much natural habitat, whatever that means, mm-hmm. as many native species as possible. That will fit together into communities and connect those for as long as possible, because things are changing too fast.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, things yeah. are changing.
0: Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really good good way to to look at it. Just. Realistic, but you know, hopeful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: and then the idea of assisted migration comes in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Should you be taking a plant that occurs south of where you are and mm-hmm. moving it north in anticipation that in fifty years the 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 zone maps are going to match
2: mm-hmm.
1: that? And there's some argument for and against that yeah. because is that going to be an invasive species? But we don't know. There's no way mm-hmm. to know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a member of the American Chestnut Foundation, mm-hmm. which is really cool, and they're doing some amazing research that could apply beyond chestnut trees to where we could start to consider restoration of, of other species that are right now in decline. Mm-hmm. Um, and chestnut wasn't part of the forest here, but knowing that that was a huge loss and being able to do some restoration that involves bringing species back that should be on the landscape or, should or were on the landscape and maybe could take another opportunity to, to be on the landscape again, that's exciting too. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of restoration, but it's not restoration that, that um, it, it's just kind of hard to plan for that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would that look like?
0: Yeah, like there's, there's so many components. Yeah. So keep in mind. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. Fire is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Very nice.
1: This is a really interesting time. Yeah. Should we go back up this way? Sure, yeah. So we're we're going back up the center lane. You can see at the end of the lane we've got wood. Uh firewood so when trees fall at Christie woods um, they often will fall across a path or out on the lawn or you know sometimes they're just uh, overhanging the fence because we've got a lot of fence and we can't allow that to stay so I try to at least get some of that wood uh, moved out here so it doesn't doesn't all stay on the floor Uh I know we want to keep some of it on the forest floor too recycle minerals and nutrients and that kind of thing but it's just way too much for that little property. Mm-hmm. So we bring some out here and then it, it's available for people that want to make a donation for firewood they uh-huh. can take some.
2: Thanks.
1: And then the structure, so we've got this wind generator here
2: uh-huh.
1: and it powers that little building to the left of it. That is the uh, Straw Bale Eco Center. It was oh. built in 2008 and it's the first load-bearing straw structure that we know of in Indiana. Wow. So it's not actually hooked to the grid, but it uses the wind generator and four photovoltaic panels, and then it's got a a hot water system that heats the floor.
0: Very cool, is that, so as a straw structure, the just the, the the walls and yeah, all the, the walls structure hold inside. the
1: hold the roof up. There's oh. no, it's not post and beam or you know with straw infill. It's actually the roof sits on bales of straw,
2: that's
1: and it's got a, a stucco exterior that helps to it can breathe,
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, and, and so it's all other than like windows and and, and the metal roof. It's all basically uh, material that's available from from the site
0: nice. now that's that's really cool yeah um, it's and now since it's it's been there since uh, since 2008
1: yeah since 2008
0: and so you've had enough time to like is moisture a problem with moisture is not
1: really a problem what what this one experiences uh-huh. uh, it does some of the roof overhangs were designed a little too close to mm-hmm. um, exposed Wood, so uh-huh. some of that has to be replaced, and uh-huh. it's getting a little bit of an overhaul to prevent that from happening again. Um, but the interior is still great, uh-huh. we haven't had any any trouble with that.
0: Very neat. I'll definitely take a picture of that. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll open it.
1: So you can walk around inside there. Um, it's interesting. One of the or several of the people involved in constructing it mm-hmm. were international exchange students from Brazil mm. so I've been able to maintain uh, a relationship with some some of the people that I've known from Brazil back and forth and my family has hosted I think eight or nine oh, cool. Brazilian students and so we're still still close with a number of them but they helped some of them helped with the construction of this. We we'll go around this time. We do have some of the stucco breaking off, so okay. that has to be replaced.
0: And is this used for programming?
1: Yeah, except this year it's not because of the COVID. But <laughs> um, we do have. We've had meetings out here and classes out here. The wildland fire class, you know, I think they they took the. Um, your certificates in here.
2: Ah. Uh. You go ahead.
1: Thanks. So yeah, like I mentioned, it's the first load-bearing straw structure in Indiana. And it, uh, as there's a sequence of photos over here. It's because we have such clay soil, it's not on a foundation, it's up on pillars Uh and it's got hydronic floor heat so pex tubing that runs through Uh here there's a water storage tank it's got a uh, solar hot water collector system with a drain back fluid and so it can store up that water and it's got a battery room out here and recently got some lighting upgrades when it was built led lighting wasn't easily available Uh and now we've got it
0: very nice and then is this the space is uh
1: that's just like uh it's not a used attic Uh but it does have a separation between the the ceiling and the the roof and there's a vent that can pull some of that air out when it it gets hot this
0: is this is uh this is really interesting
1: uh so it's yeah the you, you think about a two by four wall is maybe like r8 Mm -hmm. the insulation value yeah this is like r40 wow yeah (laughs) with the door closed uh, it can be really quiet in here
0: yeah i mean you can just tell the difference from i mean that that road's not that busy but like just coming in here it's just like yeah completely yeah (laughs) it's it's
1: basically silent
0: yeah no very cool
1: yeah and it's nice because we can get wi-fi from the house Mm -hmm. so sometimes i'll come out here and and do some work if i need to Nice.
0: Um, well, is there anything else that you would like to talk about before we, um...
1: Yeah, I, I guess the the thing that I'm, I'm most excited about mm-hmm. is that I get to work with students uh-huh. who are, are learning these things for the first time. Mm-hmm. The They've had some classroom training. They might have had some experience before they come to Ball State, but to be able to pull it all together and to work in teams, to to have objectives like removing the honeysuckle from an area or targeting teasel or creating an interactive map Mm -hmm. that they can can go out and work with. All of those different components, being able to work with students who are learning these things for the first time, it keeps it fresh for me. Mm -hmm. I'm really able to, see what my priorities are through new perspectives and help shape the, a little bit of the direction that they are going. So I'm always excited to, to get new enthusiastic students to work with.
0: That's awesome.
1: I'd like to be able to expand that. I'm not sure how to do that, but I'd like yeah. to be able to make it so that more students who are interested in doing any field work get those experiences.
0: Mm-hmm. Very cool. No, yeah. it sounds like you, I mean... Not only do you have a fantastic classroom here, and I mean the outdoors part, mm-hmm. but just just everything that you do and the ideas that you shared, um, I feel like anybody that gets to work with you is is gonna do great.
1: <laughs> yeah, we we maintain. I've had like seventy students over the years that have worked closely with me, and uh, I stay in touch with a number of them, mm-hmm. not as many as I'd like to. I'm not really great with social media, uh-huh. but uh, it, it it often is a very meaningful experience and I'll hear from people that have worked for me a long time ago and, and they'll say things like, well, if I could have any job, I'd want your job, uh-huh. but I, I, I'm doing this for now.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And this is the kind of job that you don't um, leave mm-hmm. easily. Mm-hmm. There are really only two ways out of this job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well John, thank you so much for taking the time to, to meet with me and talk, talk to me about the work that you do here and, and your sites.
1: Thank you, Fred. Thanks for making the uh, opportunity for me, and thanks for making it possible for people to learn about the kind of work that's, that we're able to do and, and how important it is.:
0: Huge. Thanks. Again, to John Taylor for taking the time to talk to me about the work he does at the Ball State University sites. For more information on his projects, I've listed some informational links on the page for this episode at MidwestDuration.com. If you are enjoying Midwest Duration, know that you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or follow it on Facebook to be notified when the next episode is published. Thanks for listening to Midwest Duration.